0: We are paying lip service to, to well-being and because we are understanding it as something quite superficial. For industry that require a huge investment in terms of intellectual capability and a whole of mind, whole of brain, the focus on well-being needs to be a great deal more robust.
1: Kiora, I'm Troy, here as CEO and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry, and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Kia ora, I'm Kim, here as Manager of Marketing and Communications, and today our conversation is with Alia Bojilova, who is an experienced industrial and organisational psychologist. Aaliyah has a particular passion for organisational and talent development, and leadership and resilience. And it's these HR innovation skills we can't wait to tap into as one of our key speakers at our 2020 Vision Conference, being held in February 2020. So, Leah, welcome so much to the studio. I'm so excited to actually get to have a chat with you. Um, And I I guess I just wanted, I'm really keen to sort of get a bit of an understanding about yourself and the role that you're currently in. Um, So I'd love it if you just could give a bit of background on what you do
0: and what your passions are. Great. Luckily, what I do is my passion. So I'm one one of those really blessed characters. So I'm an organizational psychologist and I have spent the vast majority of my career in the New Zealand Defence Force. I'm still there, this time as a reservist though, but I spent um, 15 years in the New Zealand Army, in the New Zealand Defence Forces, an Army officer, where my primary focus was selecting top individuals, developing um, irresistible talent brands effectively. It's not called that in the military, but it's effectively what we were trying to do. So focusing very much on um, culture of peak performance and what might that mean for our troops so once I left the military, I continued on with that same focus. And my last, um, my last task in the military was deployment to Syria in 2013 and 2014. Oh, wow. We, a couple of incidences that we were involved in um, created an opportunity for us to study far more deliberately and in a more disciplined way what resilience actually looks like and means in action. So in 2013, myself and two others were taken hostage in Syria And that, serendipitously, I know it sounds shocking, but it was a remarkable (laughs) gift. If you're a geek like me, I remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, there's so much to be learned about this. Um, And so in that particular incident, we were able to discover a really dominant and powerful link between curiosity and resilience. And then I went ahead and did my PhD in that exact area. Currently, I work as the associate director of a company called Sheffield, which employs a whole heap of brilliant psychologists, um, and I lead them, which is always profoundly humbling, (laughs) but um, that's really my focus.
1: That is, I wasn't even expecting that to come from you, (laughs) so that is absolutely amazing, Mm -hmm. and I actually think a really show of a strong character when you can take something that would normally make you feel so worried or scared and Mm -hmm. turn it around and say, what can I learn from that? Mm -hmm. So that is just an amazing story and it makes complete sense why you have started to focus on that sort of psychology of, of that sort of organisational behaviour and, mm-hmm. and resilience, so Absolutely. that's phenomenal. Absolutely. So I guess around that, um, you've applied those learnings to your current role and what you're trying to do to help organisations, yes. um, what do you see in terms of HR as those trends that are going to be coming up then that you can really help in that space? So it's, it's
0: really interesting and, and I really appreciate this question. The HR industry is, or, or discipline, is something that I'm a part of. But also I know every one of my colleagues will be equally comfortable me challenging how well we've done and how much more we can do. So there are a variety of trends that are now something we are experiencing but we haven't actually been preparing ourselves deliberately and meaningfully. We've we have waited for the wave of stuff to hit us before we started thinking. So, for example, there are a myriad of trends that we have known about for a long, long time, but done nothing about. I remember reading an article that was dated back to 1992 when I was at university long time ago. And what they were saying, there was this perfect quote, which was, We need to prepare ourselves for an unprecedented wave of change, ambiguity, and unpredictability. As a Bulgarian immigrant to New Zealand, I remember thinking, what? Has that not always been the case in human history? What do you mean we have to prepare ourselves for it? But we haven't. So the sorts of things that we are already beginning to see, and the organizations that I work along with, which are everywhere from um, vast... um, government organizations, such as ministries, through to some of our brightest and sparkiest organizations out there in the corporate space, the things that we have known will affect us, we have not been thinking about. So here are some of the factors. We have known for a while that we are going to have that unprecedented change in ambiguity. It's happening in our environment, which we are intimately impacted by the degree of social awareness is increasing and it must continue to increase, which means expectations are changing. Expectations of employees in terms of their own life expectations, mm-hmm. as well as what they expect of the employers and the organisation that they are part of, have shifted significantly in that they're expecting more transparency, greater accountability, deeper and more pragmatic connection between values and what happens on the, or in reality. You know, uh, Gone are the days where we have fluffy little statements on the wall and we expect people will continue on to show up and collect the paycheck without paying clear attention of what are the behaviors that they're observing around us. There's such thing as the end of a lifer. People are changing careers far more rapidly. We have global competition for talent, global competition and scarcity of resource, but exponential increase in demand. So all of these things combined with, I guess, um, rise of technology, command and control perishing and people expecting leaders to display authenticity, warmth, to be transparent about the areas that they haven't got the skills in. All of that has changed. Um, And it's changed and it's our reality and we are lagging. We are still holding on to scripts and structures and templates around how to do work and no longer are these things holding. So it's remarkable to watch how far behind we are and how we are playing a catch-up game, as opposed to be preemptive and as opposed to maintaining a sense of openness and curiosity around how we can do better as one community, as one global community. I mean, I really love what you're saying there,
1: and I actually can align it a lot to a lot of the things that I'm hearing when we go and do our member visits. Um, I think that there's a really pro- a big problem there in terms of. A lot of our members can see that they've got issues in terms of the skills gap, in Absolutely. terms of staff retention. Yes. Um, and I don't think they're connecting the dots to the fact that these future trends, like, you know, staff are wanting to be more engaged in social mm-hmm. applications. They're not Absolutely. seeing that and in, in realising that that may be a direct cause yeah. of why they're experiencing all of these ebbs and flows with staff and what they could do to change it. So I, th- I find that really fascinating. So I guess on that tact, mm-hmm. what do you think or how do you think this will apply to the metals industry? What, what should we be doing or taking notice of and yes. really starting to change?
0: Consider this it's, if, as an industry. This is an industry that is heavily reliant on deep expertise, right, we are reliant on skills and capabilities that cannot be grown overnight on a street. They require contextual framing, they require education, they require really deeply embedded skills. So the metal industry is of particular risk, I guess, along with many other expert industries or deep expert industries, because if we aren't thinking of what our people are demanding and what we need to be creating, jointly co-creating along with them, such as opportunities to be captivating hearts and minds meaningfully and creating um, opportunities for broader impact, then we are forever going to have low skill capabilities or a high turnover of staff. So I think the impact for this industry, as well as many others that are reliant on deep capabilities and competence, are likely to be far greater. Mm -hmm. You're also dealing with, like I mentioned earlier, higher demands greater scarcity of resource. And so combining these two things that are simply what the environment is putting to us as a pressure, mixing that up with what human, the human capital is requiring of us means that we really need to be thinking far more innovatively, thinking with far bigger, deeper hearts and be profoundly more resilient in a more meaningful way so that we can continue to survive.
1: Yes, well, I know that resilience and well-being are definitely some of the core passions that you have in terms of human resources. So from a practical sense, um, I'm thinking more from our metals industry who are those very deeply technical, um, focused industries. You know, from a practical sense, how does well-being fit into the workplace?
0: It's been interesting. I remember focusing on well-being and it feeling quite fluffy not so long ago and actually seeing and it's difficult for me to admit that as a psychologist right because of course that's the primary focus of, of what I do. We are paying lip service to to well-being and because we are understanding it as something quite superficial for industry that require a huge investment in terms of intellectual capability and whole of mind whole of brain the focus on well-being needs to be a great deal more robust so when we're speaking of well-being we aren't just thinking of does this individual have 40 minutes a day to run up and down a hill before they come back to the desk we are thinking about to what extent is this human being's values captivated by the environment in which they're in to what extent are they feeling like they can bring the whole of themselves meaningfully without any fluffiness attached to it to work so in areas where we are employing experts, we need to be thinking far more deliberately around what does it mean for this whole experted mind to be engaged in what they're paid to do. And so in terms of well-being, the focus must be in place because otherwise we are we are kidding ourselves. We can't retain that talent, or at the very least we might retain them, but in a very transactional, superficial way, which does not respond to the complex challenges that we are dealing with. So it's um Really, the question, what what does that mean pragmatically? To what extent is that human being allowed and encouraged to bring the whole of themselves? How aligned are the values that they bring as a human being with the environment in which they're in? Far more complex, but also easily attainable if you can have the transparency and openness of discussions with that person and with your staff. Then do they have healthy lunch and can they take a run up the hill? All of these things are required, um, but certainly it becomes a little bit more intricate when you're thinking of values, preferences, focus on life, um, requirements around true diversity of thought, which is fundamental for innovation, and, and fluidity and flexibility of work. All of these things are an absolute must
1: yeah, I don't think that very many companies would look at well-being from all of those different angles. And I know at Hera, we've been on a bit of a journey to focus in on wellbeing as something. And I actually even remember when Troy first started, who's our CEO, and she sat down at our first morning meeting and she said, look, we're, we're actually not going to discuss what you're going to do for the week. We're going to discuss how you feel What's upsetting you? Um, Is there anything we can do to make you happier? I don't expect you to come to work and work till, you know, nine o'clock at night. I'm going to judge you on your output. I love that. Can I join? Can I join? (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm changing my industry. And that really resonated. And I think that, our team has been on quite the journey in terms of well-being. You know, we now have core values at HERA. And I think I remember distinctly feeling in the workshop when we're trying to figure what those were that, you know, the team was a bit like, what are we doing all yes, of this for, right. you know? And and I think that these sorts of concepts are a bit foreign and, and I am I guess I'm kind of generalising here. They are a bit foreign to many associations to think, you know, why do we care what our staff are eating or, yes. or how they're feeling? But, you know, more and more we're seeing in society things like mental health awareness Absolutely. and um, the need for greater diversity for diversity of thinking. So I think it's a really interesting area. I can see definitely why you're interested in it.
0: What I love about it is how there is a distinct dollar sum associated with these things, you know, um, and even if we are less empathetic or less socially or um, I guess socially aware, I can't imagine a successful business that does not pay very close attention to these factors that can survive beyond the immediate future. So for you to have a whole of mind captured in the work that they need to do, the whole of person for the whole of their life Focus on well-being and, and authentic, I guess, engagement are absolutely critical for business success. And so, what I love about it is that we aren't, we we no longer have the freedom to think that this is nice to have or something that allows us to look like nice people or sell some sort of social persona out there to um, as an organization. It is a bottom line requirement. Yeah,
1: I think when you put it in that context, yes. it makes it something that people really have to open up their eyes and, and look at if they're going to survive future survival. Mm-hmm. So uh, with the thinking that, you know, well-being and all of these sort of diversity, mm-hmm. they're all kind of subjects that I think are metals industry in particular haven't really paid much attention to and as you mentioned that it's kind of those future trends that we haven't even really started preparing for. I know from Hera's perspective we have um, been attacking it from a health and safety perspective. Um, How do you see that fitting into that health and
0: safety framework? It's um, The closest reference points that I have around the pragmatism of well-being and the criticality of it in terms of health and safety is, of course, the military. And so you couldn't possibly be thinking of executing health and safety effectively or allowing it to support the broad organizational objectives and, and commercial aspirations without these two things being intimately intertwined. And so I think the risk with well-being not being a critical component, the spine of health and safety and and organizational focus is that we will continuously template and frame human behavior. Um, Whereas what we want is people to be honest, to be sincere, to be transparent with what they need and can do. Um, I guess one particular concern that I have as a psychologist and I observe the impact of with frightful regularity out there is the impact of cumulative stress and how, as a consequence, people are taking shortcuts. They aren't processing the threat that they have in front of them effectively. And so no matter how much we try to template or structure these things through working health and safety, we see that the opposite occurs. And we have suffered some, um, in a number of industries, construction being one, for example, um, suffered critical incidences of disproportionate um, rate, I guess, even though we have sophisticated health and safety system because people haven't felt the that they were welcome to share, that they were burned out, that they were depressed, that they were experiencing um, significant challenges at home. They didn't feel the level of social support that is required for someone to raise their hand up and say, I'm not with it today. Let me take a break. Um, so, so in terms of criticality, I can't think of anything more obvious um, than that. And in in environments such as, for example, military, where the risk is pertinent and obvious, these are things that have existed as a as a as a focal point of focus since the beginning of times. But in the civilian space, we are still catching up with that idea.
1: I guess that kind of fits in with your uh, thinking around resilience. So, what does that mean to you, and and why do you see that as so important?
0: There are the more I look into this, the more I realize that. There is no one definition of resilience. We can speak of it as the ability to bounce back following setbacks, is the ability to bounce forward. There's a lot of bounciness around that, right? <laughs> but what we what we really know is that all of these definitions are more superficial than than deep. And and for resilience to really matter in terms of life. Quality and in terms of organizational outputs, it needs to be what matters to that individual. We know the signs of a resilience human, but we need to be far more aware of how different journeys can take us to that exactly same, uh, exactly, um, exact place. So, what does it mean? Whatever it means to the individual, what does it mean for us as a group, as an organization, is that we have greater self-awareness, deeper and broader capacity for curiosity so that we can ask questions, so that we can explore complex ideas and experiences more meaningfully, and, of course, capacity to be selective around where we focus our attention.
1: I think resilience is such an important thing. Um, and, and I know for many people who are probably listening, they hear quite a few similarities between what resilience is and what well-being is what do you see as the key sort of defining differences between those two ideas
0: i see them as close cousins (laughs) so you can see you can't possibly be resilient well you could still be resilient whilst your well-being suffers right um but not for long Mm. you could still have brought Measurable objective well being, whilst you might have low degrees of resilience. And so there are differences in a sense that both of these things are subjective, they belong to the individual. Um, there is also this objective criteria. For example, we assume that a person who consistently displays an even keel emotional stability is resilient. That isn't necessarily the case. So it's interesting that these two things could tango dance together beautifully but they could also exist separately so I see them as intimately intertwined in individuals that have solid and permanent sense of equilibrium but in the context of continuous change and ambiguity that is less likely to be the case. And what do you think happens when
1: someone lacks resilience you know what does that lead to in terms of how they
0: work and survive in society in general? Now let's take it a step back. Resilience isn't a trait, it is a state, which means that you might be born with more of it, but depending on your circumstances and your current life experiences, you might have far less access to it. Mm. So we need to stop thinking that resilience is a thing that belongs to the individual permanently it changes so you might be highly resilient in one situation and a minute later in a different situation your resilience might go by the wayside which is why as an organization as members of a team as as leaders of organizations we have to be far more careful and far more purposeful in how we engage with people but when we're thinking about what would a human being whose resilience has gone by the wayside look like, we would expect them to be less likely to problem solve effectively. We would expect them to be far more transactional in the engagement with the task in front of them as well as people around them. And so less of the brain capacity is engaged because they're responding on fight-flight you know freeze mode as opposed to with the whole of the capability. And so what we see in terms of lower states of resilience being engaged in work issues is that we see people who are making poor judgment, poor decisions. You know, those moments where you you think you know it and then you you are in the heat of the moment and it's all gone and you can't remember what you were about to say or what the great ideas that you had were. This is a moment where resilience has gone by the wayside because you've experienced a bit more stress. And so imagine that in the longer term, for a week, for a month, for a year, how many Small potential points or decisions have been done more poorly than it should be. And what does that mean in terms of end outcome? So we expect, in in summary, lower capacity to problem solve effectively, lower access to the capability that this individual may have been selected for, brought into the organisation for, less of a capacity to engage with people positively, which, of course, has huge implications in terms of team experiences, creativity, trust, all of these things that actually have a giant dollar sum attached to them, if you want to think pragmatically, let alone all of these wonderful things that humans require to feel happy. So it's no small feat. That is
1: actually a bit scary to even think about because, you know, you see out there if a staff member isn't performing well, well, then they're probably just let go or told, you know, why aren't you doing a good job without sort of really understanding those underlying factors that may be causing their resilience to ebb and flow. So that's a really interesting aspect to think about and trying to figure out what we can do so what could we do to build up that resilience and and make them Mm -hmm. a better staff
0: member I think there's the the only thing that's left particularly in situations of um, loads of change and demands is the discipline to be able to pause to pause long enough to notice where other people are at to pause long enough to take account of where you're at you know because we are so busy and so desperate to look successful and to achieve stuff what we think is that we don't have that time but it's micro moments of engagement so let's imagine that we are thinking of organizations that have all the wonderful robust systems and processes that are required to support resilience and well-being in staff even in those moments micro moments of engagement little pause and saying are you okay How how are you today? What are you feeling? Like I said earlier, as opposed to what are you doing? (laughs) This is really important. Um, So the discipline of pausing, of stretching the gap between event and response, that's the backbone of resilience. There's nothing magnificent about it. It's simply the ability to pause and to understand where you are and how you might want to engage. That allows you more freedom to belong and make better, which is one of the dominant resilience principles, to really engage with another human being and influence them just for long enough so that they feel a little better. Even for humans that don't necessarily think they have a great deal of concern for others or empathy, that one moment of helping another human being feel a little better, just for short little periods of time, allows them to experience greater endorphin levels for themselves. So even selfishly, It's magic. (laughs) And then that, of course, allows you to tap into more of your curiosity. The, The beautiful, gorgeous parts of your brain that you have been working on developing technical capabilities become more easily accessible. So if we learn to pause and to pay attention, if we try to take more benevolent acts, we are that much closer to resilience, which is something we all have an abundance of. But we oftentimes disregard and ignore
1: yeah, that's interesting in the sense that, you know, that whole thinking around giving time to something like Absolutely. this. I think that's a huge challenge for industry to get their head around because you know, when we go out and visit them, they're always saying we don't we don't have time to look ahead and see what's happening. You know, yes. we've got business as usual. We've got to make X amount of money. We mm. have all of these projects that we have to deliver. Yes. We don't have an HR person on board. We don't have time to do that. Yes. Um, but it's an interesting thing to think about that if we did take that time, mm-hmm. what that would mean for productivity, Absolutely. how our staff would perform, and just take the weight off all those things that you are having to manage because people function better.
0: One, one thing I really like is um, the reflection that stress steals time. And I think the more we busy ourselves, the less likely we are to actually pay attention to what matters in business as usual is sometimes a horrendous, dusty pile of stuff we don't have to attend to. So again, uh, back to that discipline of pausing and focusing on the stuff that actually matters as opposed to everything that's immediately in front of you. Mm.
1: So I'd love to know if you have any particular case studies uh, around resilience in industry, just to, I guess, give some practical understanding of what that could look like for anyone out there. Brilliant.
0: This, again, unfortunately or fortunately, the most powerful case study that I have front of mind, where individual resilience and organizational resilience in terms of tangible outcomes is beautifully married, is um, the military. And actually one of the units that I spent six years of my life serving with. Um, So in this particular unit, the the core focus of them is the highest level of ambiguity and threats and high deployability, which means however well you thought your week may go, you might get called upon to deploy elsewhere at you know a really short notice time. So why are they able to maintain both individual and broad organizational resilience? There's loads of measures of that. There are plenty of examples out there that do that well, but in that context where everything is so close to, um, I guess, the testing point, the dominant predictor of resilience was the depth of the depth and sincerity of relationship between people. So it isn't a matter of are these people alike? Do they even like each other? But what is the quality of the relationship between them? So you might have really different, diverse, um, in fact, polar, opposite personalities that are fully committed to finding ways within which they support each other's resilience simply because they realize how dependent they are on the other person's well-being. And so I observed this um, in Middle East, in, in, in many of my deployments, but most importantly in Syria and the critical incident I mentioned earlier, where in that context you find yourself full-heartedly committed to the happiness of the individual that you're with, even if you don't know them, even if you don't even like them, if only because you know you are intimately, your survival is intimately dependent on their resilience and well-being. And so the capacity to pay attention, the capacity to pay attention to the right things, the discipline to stay focused on the ways in which you can make things better, as opposed to stick to some sort of script that has suddenly become redundant because your environment has changed. So agility of thought, interpersonal and broad intellectual curiosity, willingness to ask wicked questions, shift away from command and control, and focus on what do you care about? What do you think you can contribute in this particular situation with, irrespective of rank? These things are fundamental. So what can we practically do? Be more open, be braver, so that we can allow others to engage the fullness of their minds and hearts in what we have entrusted them with. But most importantly, care more deeply, not only because we should be averagely good humans, but most importantly because that's fundamental um, for our survival.
1: So do you think then that resilience is just something for leadership to worry about or do you see this as something that we need everyone
0: to engage in? I have another bias, and again, it comes from the military. Leadership is something that isn't in rank or in years of experience or in title. In fact, the most anti-leadership, characteristics and experiences emerge when people think just because of rank they got it (laughs) it's not so it's something that is bestowed upon you based on your engagement with the environment it absolutely must be a focus area for everyone that we are engaged with and and when it comes to resilience the greatest of leaders are the ones that are amongst the ranks that are down on the ground a number of the organizations that i currently work with particularly in the government space demonstrate the highest level of leadership and positive influence on resilience, not by the leaders that are driving the organisation, but by the individual who is doing the simplest of jobs out there. And they create positive, powerful ripple effects that prevent crises, that help problem solving, simply because they care.
1: So how do we get people to want to practice this idea of resilience? I mean, do we have to start it at schools or how do we start this movement towards resilience?
0: I think we don't... The movement has started. (laughs) We just have to participate in it and to support it. And I think where we have a degree of influence because of our role or because of our um, resources, our only responsibility is to make more space for it and to not put barriers on its way with silly expectations or um, you know structures that no longer hold human appetite for growth and development, the movement has started. That's the good news. The bad news is that we have to catch up mm-hmm. by being far more open to what we need as one people. So for those people who are sitting on the
1: fence and thinking, "Oh well-being, yes. fluffy, you know resilience, fluffy. Is there any hard data around these ideas to support that
0: this is something we need to take strong notice of? An abundance. There is an abundance of data, and the geek in me is wanting to put forward a whole heap of charts and big Be geeky. <laughs> and, <equations. laughs> uh, and the data is has been around with us for as long as humans have existed. It's just that now we're becoming a little bit more sophisticated on linking things like engagement, poor engagement or poor measures of well-being. And engagement is another one of those horrendous words, right? Poor measures of well-being in organizations and organizational productivity. So everyone who feels that these things are fluffy, good luck. They might want to prepare themselves for a shorter-term survival um, and perhaps abandoning ship after a while because we know in the level of, at the level of ambiguity and change and unpredictability we are dealing with, we cannot do without it. So the data intimately links perceived resilience, well-being, and even sense of belonging immediately with numbers around productivity, organizational survivability, uh, ability of the organizational strategy to actually come to fruition meaningfully. And there's plenty of evidence going the opposite way as well. And so, for example, the sinister negative outcomes of well-being, resilience, and individual needs being disregarded in a process of executing strategy. This leads to significant degrees of counterproductive behaviour. We've known that for a while. It also leads to, ultimately, um, degradation of the social fabric of an organisation. And unless you are an organisation of one person, you kind of need more than one brains <laughs> to run it.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's a really interesting thing in terms of that diversity of thinking. Um, we at Hero have started to really align with this idea of challenging our members to think about how could different cultures, different genders, mm-hmm. different whatever um, bring deeper and more diverse thinking to a problem we're trying to solve. Absolutely. What would that look like if we had different people thinking differently, mm-hmm. trying to solve the same problem? I think it's such an exciting idea to think about in terms of innovation because you need that diverse sense of thinking to Absolutely. to achieve that sort of realm where you find something new. So I really definitely buy into that idea of diversity. And I guess that's a great segue to talk about Women in engineering,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: is quite a a big thing. We're on it. We're on a journey in our industry, and um, I actually recently received some feedback from a member who said we're loving all the communications you're putting out. It's so different, fresh, mm. and but the only thing is, is we do talk a lot about this idea of more women in engineering, um, and I find it quite interesting because. You know, we're we're trying to push these ideas into our members' minds because, you know, they represent a huge part of the world. And if we're having issues with skills shortages, Mm -hmm. um, diversity of thinking, they seem to me to be a really great target audience that could potentially change the way we interact with the world and and the sorts of solutions we're able to deliver. I mean, what's your thinking around those sorts of things?
0: I love all of these sorts of things and also I love equally the fact that we are at a place where we can no longer question this or think of it as a nice to have. As a female, uh, one of the most frustrating experiences for me has been the nudge and the forcing of that requirement of that female versus others or quota in organizations because, of course, it leads to all these negative biases or look. We just have to have a few more of a different kinds on our board or in our organization and we'll be okay. What I love about it is that there is absolutely no way you could do innovation without having diversity of thought. And that means true diversity of thought. You're absolutely right in, in um, showing or, or showcasing how Unless we do that truthfully, meaningfully and with absolute commitment to what that means in terms of pragmatic results, we're going to continuously reinforce fixed mindsets, right? And we know that to be innovative, to be creative, to problem solve and to survive meaningfully, we have to have growth mindset, which means we can't keep seeking people who think alike us, act alike us and look alike us. Now, I can't think... Of an organization or a leader that should be confident enough in thinking they can survive <laughs> <laughs> without embracing this uh, it isn't a nice to have anymore it is an absolutely critical necessity so i think true diversity true diversity of thought and and um of being is what we should be seeking and uh, i like that we are at a place where we can't deny that anymore
1: it is an exciting place. Mm. I think uh, this also brings up that idea of resilience as well because we do, uh, not to say we don't have women in engineering, we have some amazing women doing some great things around the world. Yes. Um, but there is that horrible statistic out there that mm-hmm. like 29% of women in engineering end up leaving the industry after sort of five years. Yes. Um, I guess that's that idea of resilience. Like, How do you see that? protecting them from
0: continuing on in their workplace? I don't for a minute think that women might be leaving the workplace. And this statistic is probably unique to engineering in some ways, but also it's quite consistent across the board, right? I don't know if... I don't think for a minute this is a reflection on resilience of the individuals who are stepping away from a challenge they committed to. The question we have to so search around is to what extent does the environment allow for that talent to be truly captivated and to feel like this is worth the while. Work is an immense sacrifice and also counterintuitive unless you feel full-heartedly engaged, purposeful and committed to what you've got in front of you. So what I'm disappointed about is the fact that we can erode the resilience of an individual who has worked so hard to get to that place, lose the capacity of the organisation to be more resilient to the richness of insights that they bring simply because we pay lip service to what diversity actually means. And so there's plenty of organisations that have worked towards creating more diverse board, more diverse leadership team, more diverse organisations. But what they do is do things like, okay, hello, different person. Come along and be a little bit more like us, if you don't mind, please. You know, we all know that you can only hold that game for that long before we begin to leak the truth. So it is less about these individuals and far more about what does the organisation require in order to hold that richness of potential. So we have massive amount of soul searching to do across variety of industries around that.
1: Yes, I think it's about taking that sort of accountability for what role have you played Absolutely. and whatever staff member, whether mm-hmm. it's a young engineer who's just started or... Yes. Your, your older staff members, like what are you doing to engage them across the board so that they absolutely want to stay with you? So that's I right. think that's definitely a big piece of that puzzle. Mm-hmm. And I do know that a lot of our industry are doing some really exciting things to really step up their game in terms of human resources mm-hmm. and that retention and, and looking, up, looking after their employees. I know that one of our members, Long vowed is actually in the process of testing out the four-day Week. excellent thank, thank goodness yeah. <laughs> so what is your take on things like that and what what are those little wins that we could
0: try and test out and see if it works for us and brings greater return so the whole concept behind it needs to be that we focus on creating an irresistible talent proposition and for that to happen it means that we need to engage with everyone that we consider talent so that they can shape what that looks like for them in a the context of the outcomes that we are trying to achieve together 4 day week is something that many places around the world have employed for some time already, and we, again, are lacking, right? And so that idea of us needing to beast ourselves to be there uh, is intensely counterintuitive. So 100% success with 80% of your time, 100% better is what we really should be aspiring for, so I agree, absolutely, that particularly for complex roles that require more of the human mind to be engaged in it, you cannot achieve that without giving the brain a bit of a rest, without allowing that human to connect more broadly with everything else that matters in their lives. So there's so much evidence and data behind that um, that I think we shouldn't just be experimenting, we should just commit to it. And measure the results, measure the success on the other side of it. I hope my boss is listening. I'm loving the idea. (laughs) Well, I think that's
1: all the questions I have, Aaliyah. That was such an amazing talk with you today. Thank you so much for coming in to share a bit of your expertise with us. I I no doubt believe that everyone will get something from that that they can take away with and and implement into the organisation. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been excellent. Thank you. So there you go. Thanks for joining our conversation with Alia today. If you'd like to connect more with her, you'll find her details in the show notes. To me, this was such an interesting conversation around HR innovation. It's a concept our industry probably hasn't given much thought to, but they really should, especially if they want to address our growing skills gap challenge that we're facing. It reminded me of what Steve Wynn once said, human resources isn't a thing we do, it's the thing that runs our business.
0: Hi, I'm Brian Lowe, Membership Services and Support Manager at Hera. I hope you enjoyed what Aliyah had to say about HR innovation, and you can take away something that you can apply to your organisation. Aliyah will be presenting with four other thought leaders from around the world on topics such as digital fabrication, large-scale 3D printing, future technology impacting you and your industry, culture building, and so much more. If you're keen to hear more from her, be sure to register for our 2020 Vision Conference next year. That's the 21st of February 2020. Make sure to block out that date. Details are in our show notes. We're also looking for sponsorship partners who understand our innovation and future-proofing messages. It's not just about dealing with issues today, but more importantly, what's coming in the near future.